Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey, everybody, Pascal here. Another episode of Disrupt Disruption today with Alice. Alice is the co-founder and design strategist at the Future Urban Living, or FUL. Um, she's a uh, long-standing, long-term UX interaction designer, has done work with IBM, has traveled the globe, has worked in China and many other places, is part of many organizations focused around circular economy and the well-being of this planet. And I'm just super stoked for this conversation because I already know it's going to take us into really interesting, probably unknown so far, corners of this universe. Alice, so good to have you. Thank you, Pascal. Thank you for having me. Your introduction was very flattering. Let me start off with my typically, uh, my opening question. Um, just curious to understand from your perspective, how do you, with your experience, define innovation and disruption? Well, that's a very interesting question. In, in uh, Being a designer, I think... First level of disruption is really to think what is the power of a designer in the services and products that we create today. Not thinking how we can benefit our client with our work, but also the impact that our work has on the bigger context. And 80% and of the impact that the product has by statistics, it's, it's determined during the design phase. So I think first thing first is really understanding the power of design in, in making new products and services. And then from the perspective of the circular economy, I think the biggest disruption in the way we do business today is to stop thinking competitively and start thinking more collaboratively, applying more of a digital mindset to the industry, collaborative shared thinking and open source mindset to everything else that is not digital. I think that alone brings in a huge level of disruption in the way we conceive our businesses. And, and last thing I would say, putting the context in the equation of everything that we do and not thinking uh, analytically and by not thinking in, in terms of uh, generic terms of businesses and services and products, but really putting them in the context where they are generated and for the user and for the nature they will impact. Let me dig into this. I love the point that you brought up around the idea that uh, we should really not see our competition necessarily as competition, but much more as part of a network. In many ways, digital companies like to talk about the platform economy, though I feel like often when we talk about platform economy, it's more like I own the platform and you become my servant. But I'm curious, how do you even go about this? How do you approach this? Because it is, I, I believe, inherently hard to do. Well, it is very hard to do. And, and this is why it's a very slow process and it involves a lot of decision makers. So it's not something that you can build in three months. In any case, it's about really changing a mindset. So it's a very, very slow change. But imagine, I think no company wants to depend on another company for its resources, but somehow we are reaching a tipping point in which we've seen with COVID, the value chains, the supply chains are being uh, shaken by all the changes in the international relations because of the pandemic. 
I always bring up this example when I teach a lesson and uh, we wonder, what if Starbucks gives all their coffee grounds to Colgate to make a toothbrushes that anyways will become waste in three months? Is that possible to actually take something that is waste for somebody and can become plastic or uh, input material for another business? And if we think it's possible, how can we make it so that it's not taking another material and inputting it in the market and, and uh, providing it to the whole world without any distinction. But can we make it localized? Can we make it contextualized? Can we create a system that is resilient by design because it takes resources where they are abundant and it's inputted in, in the production systems where it can be input and it's not uh, the same for everybody all over the world. The way we have, this is a funny example, but the way we designed and, and the sewage systems in Europe, it's the way the Romans did it because we've always had this abundance of water in Europe that is not the same in Africa. So how can we create a system that you know uses the local resources to provide better service for the local people? If you're working with a client, how do you go about this in, in a practical manner? What are your first steps? I think disruption is something that you really need to plan, even if it doesn't sound logical, but it really needs to be planned in great detail. So first thing first is to align on the definition of what is a systemic collaborative approach or what is a circular economy and align the mindset of any production line, even anybody that works in the company to this new idea of doing business. And second is probably defining what is the scope for the future. What is my scope for 2030? What is my scope for 2050? Can I backcast from there and understand what do I need in order to get there? So in order to implement a circular economy, you need to use a lot of digital assets and measuring, tracing. You need to understand not only what are your human resources or what are your distribution channels, but what are your inputs? What are the resources that you use and how much of it becomes a product? How much of it gets wasted? How much of it is polluting? So a lot of data planning and trying to invite the disruption really from the design phase, because after that you can own, you can gain a better control of all the following processes from the relationship with the client, the feedback loops from your customers, your communities, and at the same time, management of materials, maintenance, and retention of the clients against the competition. It's really a very integrated process. Do you see this as the right thing to do, which without a doubt it is, but also do you see this as a, a potential competitive advantage? Is this something which you believe in the future will become a disruptive competitive advantage? I think it is. To be fair, it, it, it might not be seen right now as a competitive advantage because it costs a lot in terms of implementation. And we still need more broader change in mindset and behavior before we get there. But if you think, I know I talked about the collaborative mindset and, and it's a controlled collaborative mindset. When you think of companies like Apple that are starting to collect back all their old iPhones and, and they develop their own robots to dismantle them, to recover all the materials, this is a way to actually retain more resources to retain your clients as well. Because when, you, when your phone is broken, you throw it away. And instead with Apple, you go back to the Apple store and you see the new products and you talk with the person in, in the store. So there are many more touch points that keep your customer involved with your business. And because of that, I think this is a crazy competitive advantage. There are other distributed models like the way Xiaomi started to produce their first phones in China. 
because they wanted to move fast. They outsourced the blueprints of the design of their phones to many different producers so that they could manage a huge production in shorter times. And that creates a problem by design because then different producers have different standards, slightly different kinds of plastics, slightly different materials and processes. And if you don't control that, you end up with products that cannot be fixed, maintained, and you disperse a lot of energies. So, I mean, there might be like a way in between where we can have this collaborative way of providing a service, collaborative among businesses, collaborative with customers, collaborative in many different ways with different partners, but at the same time, keeping a control on the whole value chain that I think is essential to provide the competitive advantage to the company in the future. So it's a long-term competitive advantage. It's not something that you do in the short. Building on what you said, I'm interested. We have this model, we like to call it the hourglass model, where it, it seems to be mm. that markets tend to go into, uh, and companies inside of those markets tend to go into one of two directions. One is you're deeply vertically integrated. Think a company like AB InBev, the beer brewer, they own their own glass manufacturing facilities. They own even the sand pit, which makes the sand, which then gets molten into the glass. And then on the flip side of that, you have these companies which operate extremely lean, probably the most prominent, one of the most prominent examples, Kylie Jenner's cosmetics company, which is 10 people or used to be 10 people and yet makes hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. How do you see this play into the world you occupy, the, the circular economy? Do you need to be vertically integrated to actually get this done? Or do you think it's there's an emerging way to do this, even if you are a very lean company, which only focuses on very specific parts of your value? Mm, I think in order to mm, have this kind of long-term planning that is needed when you think systemically, when you think in circular economies, you need to start from some, you can be circular by design if you're a small startup, but that will involve a more upfront capital. And so beyond that, I think on, on one side, you need to be prepared to become circular. On the other side, sometimes when you start, you cannot be fully sustainable and you need to have a roadmap in place, but you cannot start with the whole set of uh, operations because it's just too burdensome for some companies to start. So yes, you can start leaner. I think circular economy greatly it's, it's a, makes a bigger impact with the bigger companies because they are the ones that move huge quantities of materials at the same time. So Yes, you need a certain kind of vertical integration. And, and I think this is required, again, for what we call the liability continuum. It doesn't make sense right now that I buy materials from a company, I transform this material, they're sold to somebody that owns them. As a consumer, I own my phone, I own my bicycle. And then after that, I don't know who's going to own it. Do I throw it away? Do I give it to somebody else? How do I decide the type of ownership that is, who's, who's going to be the next owner of my products and services? So I guess some kind of vertical integration is really needed to keep this loop and this flow of materials and resources, but it can be shared in a way. It doesn't have to be full responsibility of the company. It can be partly responsibility of the consumer, can be partly responsibility of the government or the local institutions. So as much as there is a vertical integration, there is also this collaborative mindset that involves all the actors in the perks and, and the benefits of this, right? Because it's the duty of keeping the product usable for the next generations to come, but you also need to be involved in the rewards. So how can I be rewarded for giving the item back? Or how can I be rewarded? How can I be making a profit myself by being part of this whole system? UX and interaction designer, you clearly spend a lot of time with the, with the end customer, with the user, understanding their needs and wants, and probably even the ones they can't 
articulate properly. How do you see their, the mindset shifting? On one hand, we had for decades, you know, good decades now, the whole like fast fashion craziness where it's to buy a t-shirt you wear it once you like essentially toss it. And it is so cheap because our supply chains at least used to be so robust and so uh, incredibly cheap and clearly built on the backs of terrible things like child labor and automation on the better side. Do you see a shift in mindset at, at the moment in terms of the users? Is there clearly COVID has, has done a few of those things? I'm curious, like how, how sustainable do you think that shift is? Well, yes, COVID it was a big change in terms of, for example, digital readiness. In many countries of the world, we were not ready to use digital services as much as we are now. I started this call of mute and I'm still like making these kind of mistakes. But living in China, you pay everything with your phone. You can get any possible service at the top of your fingertip in 15 minutes. Here in Italy, it's completely different story. Sometimes you cannot even pay with your credit card in certain uh, spots. So yes, the, there was a big change in terms of digital readiness. And at the same time, I'm starting to see a change in what the consumers, and consumers is a very bad name to define us, but the communities demand from the businesses. They demand more involvement in terms of sustainability that is not only greenwashing, but is some real action. Another big change is the request for feedback. There are so many services that do not answer to all our needs. And imagine when you buy a new car and after a month you see some light blinking that says there's an error in, in the electronic system. How frustrating is that? And how can you communicate that? Do you have to go back to uh, the car dealer and then uh, leave the car there for a few days for maintenance? It's, this is really frustrating. And along with that, there are so many other feedbacks that we're not able to give back to the companies. I think it's not a frustration that gets expressed because there are no channels to express this frustration. A lot of companies outsource the customer service. They created chatbots. I think chatbot is the most frustrating thing ever. And by doing so, they thought they could optimize the time that their operators would spend talking to the customers. But at the same time, that feedback that you got, and, and probably that feedback was not the structured feedback. This is why companies thought they were losing time with customer services. Now they need to get that feedback to get from service designers, for example, that go on field, interview certain types of users, interview the disruptive startups and come back and say, this is what your users want, this is what the innovators are doing, and this is what the competition is going for. So you need that feedback anyway. Why not having it in, in a more digitalized way from your customers? There are apps uh, like this Remark app in, in the US that allow you to give uh, feedback. It's an app built on purpose to give feedback on how sustainable is a restaurant compared to how good is their food. You want to complain about the fact that they served you with a disposable cutlery or that they don't have a separated waste. And, and just the fact that this app is existing now, to me, it's a huge sign because I wouldn't expect this to be a service in the next five years to come. If you had a client coming to you today and saying, okay, I'm bought into this, this is amazing, I want to disrupt myself, my industry, where do I start? What are the, the one, two, three steps you give them as homework? Well, the problem usually is that the client comes to you with a very clear idea where they want to start from. So they come to you and they say, I want to start from making my packaging more sustainable. And then we're like, well, can we start actually from mapping the whole value chain first? And then we tell you, okay, the packaging can be more sustainable. So 
the idea is still that you need to designers and uh, business consultants at the strategic level. And this is really hard. And I totally understand it. I mean, it's not easy for a company to say, yes, I provide you with all the information of my company and do whatever you want with that. And it's, it's not easy. Of course, you want to start small and see how to implement bigger steps later on. On the other hand, there are companies that come to you and just say, I want to see what I can do with my waste now. And then if this is successful, we can also start thinking how to redesign other types of services or products or supply chains. Or some clients come to you because they are just interested in the topic, but they don't know really what to do about it. They've heard that circular economy is the next thing in sustainability, but they don't know how to implement it themselves. So a lot of the work that we have to do is really education or workshops together with the clients. And I think it's uh, 100% worth it. I mean, when you launch a challenge, a creative challenge where you have nothing at stake, you have nothing to lose and you can be creative about it and you can make the concept of the circular economy yours by actually not listening to a class, but doing the work. I think that's super valuable in order to show what is the occasion, what is the possibility more than what are the limits, what are the boundaries, because you start playing with these boundaries, you start understanding opportunities and you get excited about it. So on one hand, we have this incremental strategy services. And on the other hand, we have the education services, the workshops and, and then like the full company strategy. That is the thing that Companies are still a bit skeptical about, but it's going to be a thing in the future. Let me ask you the inverse. So when you, not necessarily your clients, but when you see people embarking on this journey, what are the common pitfalls? Like what are the things they tend to stumble over, the, the hopefully avoidable ones? That's interesting. I think sometimes you try to do things for the best and then the project backfires. When we do our first analysis with the client, we, the user, the traditional perspective of uh, uh, user-centric design, see what your user wants, understanding what is needed from the consumers, and then from there, trying to better address them with your products and services. And what we do instead is, yes, we have our final user as, as the goal of what we're doing, but we also have other types of personas that we want to address. And one is the business aspect of it. The other one is the context, so the infrastructure, the enabling services. And the other one, the, the broader one, is the ecosystem in terms of nature, in terms of what naturally would have been there if your service was not there, but also what is the nature that you're going to impact with your service. So we give a much broader perspective of when you start to think how your business impacts the nature or the local infrastructure, even to the point of thinking, if I have to deliver something, I'm going to occupy the roads that could be occupied by doing something else. This, this a lot of variables to the research that you're doing and potentially the roadmap that you're designing. So these variables can allow much more confusion because you have many more components to play with. And also they could go in the wrong direction because you want to do something that is beneficial for the environment and it, it, it turns out it's, it's actually not. You were going in that direction because you investigated the ecosystem perspective, but then these are things that happen. So you really have to be in control. You really need to have to guide this process. And I think the underlying concept needs to be very well understood because if not, it's very easy to get lost in the process. It's a really tremendously complicated process. Our brains are wired to follow simple directions and, and be analytical because you want to have the simpler 
solution to your problems. And instead, you really need to get excited about complexity. On those wise words, looking at the challenges we have on a planet scale, just thinking about climate change, all the trash we're producing, the resources we're using up, etc. I'm curious how hopeful and how much do you believe we can actually, we can do this and we can do it in time. I guess that's the big question. Oh, wow. I think the, there are too many variables, again, in, in to put in the equation because some technologies are already there. The money is there. The creativity is there. Like There are so many components of, of this whole transition that are there and, and the change is happening faster and faster. So if just few companies just go and follow this direction and the other ones are going to follow because they cannot lag behind the competition. I think we have hope. If nobody wants to make the first step, then it's going to be hard to act in time. And I don't want to see that kind of potential future. It's already very late. And, and we know we've been talking about sustainability and environmentalism since the 50s and then more in the 70s. And this has gone on in waves again and again. And I think it's not even driven by environmentalism sometimes, but it's just the moments of crisis where you see, for example, the distance between rich and poor is widening or there is a, a pandemic crisis or any point of economic crisis, they call for change. And so we go back to the narratives that could have worked, but were never implemented. And I think the environmental one and the circular economy is one that is very promising, but it's not new. We've been talking about it since the 70s, really. I mean, if we act now because of the pandemic, because we see the effects of climate change, we're, we're seeing shortages in global supply chains, then great. If we don't, we see what's going to happen. I mean, there's always so much uncertainty in historical big processes that it really cannot be predicted, but I want to stay hopeful. On the last comment, on the staying hopeful, I absolutely couldn't agree more. And I think, uh, Alicia, you ultimately made a good point here that at the end of the day, everything is there. I think it's a, a question of us choosing to do the right things. Alicia, this was an absolutely incredible conversation. I loved the breadth of the conversation. I love going into the circular economy, exploring this as a topic around the innovation and disruption context. I'm very different to the conversations we normally have here. I really love the fact that we went a little bit broader. We went into a different aspect. And probably for everybody who is you know, listening to this right now, do think about your footprint, your environmental footprint, and do think about how do you actually be a steward of this planet. That being said, Alice, thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for giving me this chance. I'm glad that it was a different conversation from the usual ones because then it's, it's just a different perspective. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. Also know that this is part of an effort of us writing a book about disruption. So uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled towards that. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and just like this. Um, there's some weird algorithm thing, which, you know, if you like it, they will like us. So do me a favor, do that. And if you've got any questions, any comments, anyone I should talk to, Drop us an email. Um, easiest email address for me to reach it is P, just the letter P, at finet.com. With that being said, thank you so much for listening, and I will hear you here soon. <laughs>